Kia This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Wellington. Welcome to Wellington Access Radio, and you are listening to B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. Um, we've got a really exciting show this evening. I'm Sadie Cove. Um, in the second half, I'm going to be talking to the Urban Habitat Collective about a co-housing project that they're getting going up in Mount Cook. Um, we also have here Laura Kewen. Hi, Laura. Hey, Sadie. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hi, Sadie. <laughs> That's better. Here I am, loud and clear. I'm just making you shout. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, looking forward to the second half of the show. That should be quite interesting. I, yeah. I find it fun that you think that that would be like a fun thing to do in 20 years. Like, Yeah, we were just chatting about it beforehand. Yeah, I just um, think being urban is probably a good thing when you're older. Like, and Keeps being you in connected. a mixed community. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, but, you know, it's interesting overall. Hey, actually, I just thought I might give you a bit of an update because I know we talked a lot on the show about um, the Everybody's Clothing Swap that I was part of organising. Yeah, let's hear about it. I just wanted to let you know that it went really, really well. It was great. People brought in um, coats and blankets, just so many coats and blankets for homeless people around Wellington. And that was a whole van load, so brilliant. And we also raised $652, I think it was, for Changemakers Refugee Forum. So just through Koha, just complete generosity. Wow. So, yeah, and it was a great fun event. Cool. Well done, Sadie. Just, just a little update. <laughs> that is so cool. It's good to be able to follow up on those things we've talked about on the show and show what an impact they've had. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited. In the first half of the show, I'm talking to... Dr. Mike Joy, he's an environmental scientist, a researcher, a lecturer at Victoria University. He's been working for 20 years on understanding the freshwater crisis in Aotearoa and on the public policies that we need to resolve environmental issues. Um, so he's here to tell us about himself and his work. Um, kia ora, Mike. Hi. Thank you for coming on. No, no, it's no worries. I'm happy to be here. So tell me about, um, I guess, when when you were a child or in your early life, was the environment always important to you? Yeah, I, when I look back on it and when I think back, um, well, I grew up in Christchurch and we, what you did in Christchurch in the, in the outer suburbs where I lived um, in a new subdivision was um, we, to, when you went swimming, you went to rivers. Rivers were everything. We had the Avon River flowing nearby and we went to the Waimakariri or the Ashley River to swim. Going to the beach wasn't an option really in, in Christchurch City. It was a long way away across the other side. We went to rivers. We went out into the country that way. So I guess that's where my link to rivers comes from. But I realised later on that what kind of motivates me is the, um, that I was, I don't know, I guess all kids my age were the same, that we were, we were, we believed we, we were told we lived in this fantastic clean green paradise and everyone else in the world lived in, you know, sort of deprived areas where, you know, the the water was polluted and the air was polluted and we were so lucky to live in New Zealand and I kind of, I grew up with that belief and so I think that's a motivator for making me really angry when I find out that, mm. that we've trashed it kind of thing, you know. Uh, how did you come to have that realisation that things weren't as pristine as you believed they were? It wasn't until um, my postgraduate study. I mean, I kind of got an idea as an undergraduate at Massey University, but I... 
I'd, I'd worked for 18 years. I'd done all manner of jobs um, and then ended up going to university in my, when I was 33 years old. And so then undergrad was just trying to, you know, um, sort of make that transition from working life and not having done that well at school into academic life. And then, but, but somewhere along the line when I started actually out doing field work and, I mean, I guess I was... Uh, some good lecturers that inspired me as well. And then I started seeing that it wasn't anywhere near what what I'd been led to believe. So the truth didn't come to me until I was actually in rivers and measuring them and, and starting to understand what was going on. Mm. And there was a there was a pivotal time, um, was uh, halfway through my master's, we were living just out of Palmy in a, in a little place called Awahuri on the Aurua River, and um, seven-year-old twin niece and nephew came to stay with us in the late summer, uh, end of the school holidays. And we took them swimming in the local river and they got really, really sick. And um, it was really embarrassing taking them home because um, we just, we couldn't, we couldn't deal with it. They were so sick, you know, mm. and they were sort of close to having to go to hospital level. Um, and then, you know, getting back home and filling up the car at the local service station and telling him, the garage guy, what had happened. And he said, oh, you don't swim in there. There's a waste, you know, the building's um, sewerage plant discharges just up the river there. And and I hadn't known that. It was this big, you know, kind of parking area on the side of the highway where people took their dogs and kids swimming. You know, there's the normal, what I'd grown up with, you know, if yeah. you had access to a river in New Zealand, you went swimming in it, you know, that's what they were there for kind of thing. So that was that was the beginning of the real shock for me and the change to want to understand what, what's, how could that happen, you know, mm. and anger that came from that. What sort of jobs did you do between school and, oh, I guess, Maxi? Okay. It was, it's probably easy to ask what I didn't do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I drove trucks, I drove taxis, I drove buses, I built a house in Wadestown. We were just talking about it before. Um, yeah. Found a little section up there and, and built a house. I um, installed bathrooms, I installed air conditioning. It was the time, you know, most people, you guys wouldn't understand it, us old people know what it was like <laughs> then. And you used to, if you got sick of a job at lunchtime, you just went down the road to the next place and got a job, you know, unemployment was was uh, not, was unknown then, you know, there was jobs everywhere, so it was um, different. Yeah, I read somewhere that you worked on a dairy farm as well. Yeah, no, that was the first job when I when I left school. Um, I was in, in love and followed my girlfriend to Palmerston North and ended up working on a dairy farm for a for a year there and yeah and I really loved it had no idea I mean it was very low input dairy farm it was kind of typical of the time milked about I think we peaked at 65 cows that I milked and, yeah. and I was by myself running that for half the time wow. but it, and it was it was really nice there was very low input kind of life but yeah it was great yeah yeah yeah, yeah. All, all those various experiences have you found mm. them to be Useful and giving you some insights as your yeah. Well, I think yeah, for sure. And I've always felt like an outsider within the academic system because, you know, like it's there's kind of a lot of jokes about um, you know the ivory towers and and that kind of thing. But it is it is really true, Mm. you know, that people who've come from school to university and then stay in a university, they do tend to have uh, a very you know kind of different view of the world. And having been out there, I think that's. That's got to be part of the reason that I was kind of different from the rest and have spoken up, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, 
What motivated you to go to Massey when you decided to study? Oh, um, I think it was probably, um, so it was about, two, when was it, 1996 or something like that? Maybe, 90, no, it must have been earlier than that, 93, 94. Um, just was getting harder and harder to just go from job to job. And, and Ali, my partner, also had been, we were sick of, you know, menial jobs and things and and had you know both wondered so, an opportunity came up with a with an old friend from school um, who had a house in Bulls. There's a little town called Bulls, not far that far from Palmy, mm-hmm. and he bought this old house for a couple of thousand dollars. And so he didn't want anything. We could just live in it and and do some work on it in in lieu of rent. So the you know that was just being able to live for nothing was made us both you know of a, you know make the choice to to go to uni. And so that was the next. 10 years of our lives as, as undergrad for me, master's and, and postgrad, PhD. Um, and then I got offered the lectureship just as, as I was sort of finishing off writing my PhD. Wow. And so, and just carried on from there, you know, yeah. You must have really liked it to keep going doing doing postgrad. Um, yeah, no, I did. I, I mean, I, I kind of after struggling the first year, I started doing better and better academically, and then um, I think like most mature students do, you know, they struggle. And then once I got into the masters, I went really well with my masters. Enjoyed the research, um, published, you know, papers and journals, which is. I've published four papers out of my master's, which is pretty unusual. You know, I was on track to be a great academic and published six papers out of my PhD. And, you know, I was going to looking like great material for that. And I guess that's why I got the job. But that was the end of my publishing career pretty (laughs) pretty much because then apart from, you know, publications with students, I just got so caught up in, in the work and you end up so overloaded with work that finding time to write your own research is really hard. You... At one stage between Russ, my supervisor, who we both were supervising, we had at one stage 16 postgrads in our lab that, between the two of us. And so that was, it was fun, it was, but it was really, really full on. And I really, I see, you know, young young lecturers in, in, in around me now who, and the work that, that gets piled on them is just an incredible workload that they, that they have. It's pretty tough. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. each of those students all doing their independent oh, yeah. research, uh, trying to get six publications. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I kind of set the bar pretty high there. But, no, yeah, I mean, a lot of them were, were going on. At, at one stage, um, all of the TSOs, which were called technical support officers at DOC at the time, which are pretty much the on-the-ground people with fresh water doing, doing the um, science work, every one of them was a graduate graduate. A graduate of ours, so we had the we had the country covered at one stage, you know. So um, I mean, that's the thing that you you kind of you get inspired and you inspire, and that's that's what you try and do, yeah. And all your research was about mm. water. I was about native fish mostly. So fish. The, the kind of uh, and then using fish, native fish as a measure of ecosystem health, you know. So I ended up getting into quite nerdy modeling stuff using artificial intelligence to model spatial movements and where you find fish in in the environment and um you know that was that kind of that kind of uh um machine learning and and um data mining and um that but but always with a practical bent that the first stuff was about assessing the effects of dams on native fish and then mm. later about using fish as a measure of ecosystem health and, and, you know, sort of turning it back on itself and being able to assess, um, you know, what what's happening in the environment. But during that process, um, 
I could see everywhere I went. I mean, I was like the the field work that I was involved with the PhD was three separate studies of the Manawatu and then Auckland and then Wellington regions, uh, 200 sites at each of them. So going out and finding sites and sampling native fish at all these sites across a huge range, you know, it was, it was, a, was a big, big task. And just everywhere I went, seeing damage, decline, you know, going back to sites where fish had been and they weren't there anymore. Mm. <clears throat> Wanting to do studies on large galaxids, the adult white bait, and and just not being able to find them anywhere because they were they were going, they were disappearing so fast. Mm. So yeah, that was the um, you know that was that was kind of another thing that was driving me towards speaking up. Mm. Yeah, and and I guess you know along the way realizing that um, these publications and really high ranking journals, which is what we were, you know, sort of given the pat on the back for, there'd be just me and, you know, a few other nerds somewhere in the world that, you know, knew all about this stuff and, and it wasn't getting out to the public at all. And so, you yeah, know, that was sort of, you know, changed my direction and made me speak out more as well. Yeah. Mm. How did you, um, did, did you find it easy to speak about what your research was? Did you have to find a way to say it in like plain English? Um, um, I think I'm still learning, you know, yeah. I don't think you even know that, but I think, and I think people listening to me now will get it, that I don't really sound like an academic. I think I'm still a truck driver, you know, and, <laughs> and so um, that's my, that's me. And I, and so I just revert to me when I'm talking. And yeah. so I think that makes, well, people tell me that makes it more, more direct. I, you know, I tend to just talk without trying to be an sound like an academic if you know what I mean because yeah, I can't yeah. it's yeah. not you know <laughs> this is this is all there is <laughs> and people I suspect don't know too much about native fish I mean well, there's yeah, an eel well, there's, yeah. there's a couple of eels well, there's, there's some white bait there's, that's kind of all, all there's 50 all species you know and it's wow. that was that's been our task is to try and get that get the word out there you know um uh it's, it's about how how most of them are eighty percent of them are endemic, you know. They, so, wow. so it's really, really crucial stuff that people know about it, um, and they can tell us so much as well, you know. Hmm. So, when you were following fish and mm. looking at rivers, um, did you find that you were um, what you were discovering about our freshwater and mm. the degradation of those habitats for fish? Was that new? Did people understand sort of the crisis that? Our water was coming into? Well, I'll give you an idea of what was happening at the time that when I started my undergrad, we had 20% of our um, freshwater fish were on the threatened species list. By the time I finished, and well, just recently, it's now 74% of them. So every time, you know, that was just, you know, 20 or 30 years of, 20 years of incredible decline in, in, of our freshwater um, fish populations in New Zealand, where it's happened in my short, you know, uh, academic career, mm. we've we've just seen this major crash that's happened. So we've had a huge intensification of farming and of of people, um, you know, um, intensification of, of humans and, and spreading out, and and our, our native fish have paid the price, mm. or our waterways have, and our native fish are the indicators of that, you know. Um, what kind of reaction do you typically get to your research? Oh, I don't know if there's a typical um, reaction. I, I mean, obviously, um, farming and, you know, when, because I, you know, having been a farmer and didn't have anything against farming, but um, 
I've come to realise that the way we farm in New Zealand is having incredibly big impact on our on our fresh waters and well, and more than that on our atmosphere as well. So, um, and and being <clears throat> in an agricultural university surrounded by agricultural scientists who are funded by industrial agriculture, you get to be in a pretty tricky position when you're pointing out the impacts of agriculture, um, and it and it caused some big problems for me um, at Massey. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the problems that you have when you, more and more emphasis now goes on universities for funding to come in from the outside and industry has all the funding. The money's always with the destroyers. So whether it's the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the sort of sugary food industry or the alcohol industry or the farming industry, um, one thing they don't like is pesky, um, you know, researchers pointing out the impacts of their product. Because um, pretty much they... You know, they have all the comms and PR staff and they can tell whatever story they like and the only kind time they get some opposition is from the few independent researchers and, and universities. So you, 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 you tend to cop a lot of flack when you start pointing out those things. What's it like to talk to farmers about the impact that, you know, intensive agriculture is having? Um, well, it's a, there's a range, you know, within the farming industry is, or farming, you know, farmers as there is in any other group. There's a there's a bell curve of of, of difference, and you know the the progressive ones, the ones that understand, are fantastic, and they just want to learn more. They want to know more. I'm on an environmental reference group with Landcorp, which is our biggest farmer, um, and and really great working with those guys who who you know see the problems and want to make a change. But there's this whole whole other side where they all they hear they live in an echo chamber of, you know, rural publications that are funded by the industry, and the industry has a story that they want them to believe, and they want to believe it, and so they do, you know. So it's not surprising that what what they hear from the likes of me is so different from what they hear from their their club, their tribe, that that they really balk against it. Hmm. Mm. Like what in particular would, would be a total disconnect for communicating with someone? Oh, well, I mean, there's just, just that they are told that, that what they're doing. That, you know, the, I guess at the core would be if they're obeying the rules, the, that therefore they can't, they're not having an impact. But they don't understand that the rules are so lax and mm. so weak that just complying means nothing. You can comply and still be having a massive impact. And so... You know their their businesses, their their livelihood, their um, their investment. Uh, the and you know dairy is a really good example where the land values are so high because they were given the right to pollute, and so as soon as you take that right away, the land value drops. And for a lot of them, they're mortgaged up to the eyeballs. The banks own the farms, and so if they want to do the right thing, the bank will tell them, "No, you can't do that. You're putting our investment at risk." So this is. This is the point that we're coming to now is that realisation that um, to, to make things better is going to be a huge loss of, of income or, you know, of land value for, for a bunch of people. You know, you, you give something away and that's all fine. Everybody likes it. When you try to take it back again, you know, understandably people aren't happy about that, especially if they're going to go to the wall, you know. So mm. it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's one of those, you know, nasty, nasty problems. But here mm. you are out there talking about the solutions. Mm. Is there a way through for New Zealand, or or mm. how do you see it being different in the future if if we got if we got our freshwater and environmental policies right? Oh, look, I can see the endpoint of what the landscape would look like and how nice it would be for everyone, including the farmers. But how we get there, 
when we've got a system where we we subsidise really bad practice and have been subsidising really, we're, we're, it's kind of weird because we're we're not subsidising it because we're not paying for it. We're subsidising it by leaving it for our kids to clean up. You know, so we're just getting worse, more and more polluted rivers, more and more polluted aquifers. That's not being stopped. It will cost a huge amount of money to stop that. At the moment, we just we're pretending we can have our cake and eat it. And it, and and you know, fresh water is just a a microcosm of what is happening at a larger scale with with planetary boundaries that we're reaching in climate change. You know, there's a huge adjustment that we all have to make really, really soon, or we're not going to have a future. And yeah, I mean, fresh water is a just one one part of that. Um. Do you do you get a bit down about it sometimes, or yeah. how, how do you keep you oh, motiv- motivated? My, my escape, um, you know, personally, my escape is um, a, an eighty-seven-year-old sailboat called right. Medina <laughs> that was built in Caldy in Auckland in nineteen thirty-two, and and um, we sail over to the sounds and relax and escape from uh, that way, or, or or pottering around working on her is is my you know it's my therapy, yeah. and I, I don't know how I'd get on without that, but. Look, all around me, um, you know, the friends and colleagues that are in the same area as me, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of depressed and down people um, because you kind of always, you're on on the right side, but you're on the side that that has the least resources. And and knowing this stuff, you can't unknow this stuff, you know. (laughs) So, um, you know, ignorance is bliss when it comes to what's happening, you know to our planet yeah well um i hope it uh makes you feel good that a lot of people want to listen to you and want to want to hear your knowledge and yeah and you know help make a difference in public policy yeah yeah no i mean that's that's kind of the with the sh- this shift towards to um victoria and in this policy space i'm spending a lot of time with ministry for the environment and you know working around how we're going to get these policies in and how that's going to work you know and that's a new field for me um and it's kind of frustrating because you realise the limitations of, of, um, you know, short-term thinking because of because sh- of election cycles and that kind of thing. Mm. And so you have, you know, in this case, ministers that really understand the problem and want to do the right thing, but if if they don't have the public on side, then they won't be able to do it. You know, this is kind of a revelation to me that's happened really recently and spending a bit of time with Chloe Schwalbrick and, you know, sort of she's so such a plain speaker and, and realising that governments don't do things. People make governments do things. And so, you know, this is why I'm here and that's why I spend so much time trying to get the word out is because if people understand the problem, then they will push government to make change. If we all just sit back and wait for government to do it, they'll never do it. It'll never happen, you know. So much lobbying pressure goes on them you know, from, from the damaging organisations and businesses that, yeah, there's, we, we, we've got the, we've got the numbers, they've got the money kind of thing. Well, thank you for coming and, and, and sharing your message. And, you know, we all share your goal of uh, making New Zealand and that vision, making New Zealand a better place. So, um, yeah, kia ora. Thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you. No, thanks for the opportunity. It's really good. Cheers. That program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks, New Zealand On Air, for funding the Access Internet Radio Project.